The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. The Ark of God dwells in a tent, and Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Israel, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord God, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. 
For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers in the back by the Children's Church sign. If it is your child's first time, please go with them and get them checked in. You want some Gatorade after that one? Just yes. to... Thank you, Steve, for reading. I promise, I promise, I promise, not every passage will be that long. Um, so, but thank you, Steve. Um, we are in the midst of a sermon series uh, in 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel, looking at the heart of David, entitled The Dispositions of the Heart. That's the sermon series title. And so, uh, as we begin this morning, I want to take you on a journey. If we hop in our cars right now, hopped on 27, went north, pulled off manufacturers, did a few turns, because there's always turns on North Shore, and then we found ourselves in a basement of a hundred-year-old commercial building. There awaits for us a deli. River Street Deli, some call it. And there at River Street Deli, we find a man at the far end of the room, wide-rimmed glasses, named Bruce. And when you walk into River Street Deli, and you walk up to the counter to order your food, Bruce is there waiting for you. And Bruce doesn't say, here's our menu. What are you liking today? Bruce says to you, Here's what you're going to have. We've got the mufaletta today. It's moist. It's juicy. It's hit all the flavor palettes. You're going to love it. And you're like, are you sure, Bruce? It's like, would I lead you astray? I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to do it. I don't know what a mufaletta is, but... For Bruce, and the beauty of River Street Deli is you walk in there and the experience is marked by, he wants to give you his thoughts so you'll be happy. His goal is to make sure your experience is filled with joy. And he knows enough to tell you, here's what it looks like. Though you didn't ask for it, that's his gift to you. You didn't ask for this information, but that's his gift to you. And that's what we see in David this morning. He's going to say to God, God, I want to build you a house. You don't have a house. I want to build it for you. And God didn't ask for it, but that's David's gift to him. And so this morning, as we look at the disposition of the heart um, is the disposition we're commending in David and want to see more rise in our own hearts? Is it to be a go-getter and to do things for God and produce things? No. In fact, the thing we'll commend in David is not go build a house for God. The thing we'll commend in David is actually when that offering and that dream and desire of David's to God is deferred, even denied. And how David is marked with trust. This morning we're looking at a heart of trust. How to trust God as he has promised you and I much. How do we have a heart of trust for him? This is the most important chapter in the life of David. Hands down. This is on the Rushmore of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. The, the, the Bible before Jesus. And really in the whole story of scripture, 
this still holds up as one of the most important chapters as God makes a covenant with David. And it foretells of the King Jesus coming, the King who will reign on David's throne. We'll talk about that in a second. But oftentimes in the most important pieces of David's life and in our life, trust is required. Not because things make sense, but because we're invited into the promises of God for you and I. And this morning, as we look at 2 Samuel 7, we'll see three things. We'll see uh, what we offer, second, what God's after, and third, how we trust. Uh, what we offer, what God's after, and then how we trust. So as we come to this text, just as we sang just a moment ago in the, the song Patient Kingdom, we need to slow our hearts down. Because much can be busy when we're hearing all these promises and a lot of action and narrative and things that are packed full, but yet it's our story. As we enter into it, let's slow down and and uh, pray. So let's pray with you. Lord, slow us down and let love do its work. The song we just sang, the lyrics we just muttered. Slow us down and let love do its work. That's exactly what you want for David in this passage. And that's exactly what you want for us in our world right now. And in our hearts right now. As this passage foretells about Jesus as the king, may we look back at Jesus the king and have trust grow in us all because Jesus you are the one writing the story. Therefore, we don't have to. We pray this all in your name, King Jesus, all because you have walked out of the grave. May we walk out with you. Pray in your name. Amen. So first, what we offer. What we offer. Uh, in Second Samuel chapter 5, we see David has been the king-in-waiting. And in First Samuel 16, he was dubbed kind of the king-in-waiting. He was anointed king. Saul was currently king then, but they said David's next up. Finally, 2 Samuel chapter 5, David becomes king in this historical book. And then chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, we see what happens with David. David uh, goes and he takes the ark back from the Philistines, defeats the Philistines, brings the ark back to Jerusalem as he captures Jerusalem again. Right, The first two chapters of the full tilt reign of David looks pretty good. Things are looking good for old Davy boy. And so he's reigning and he's ruling and things are going very, very well. Things are actually kind of at a peace right now. He's worked himself out of a job in a way. And like in Genesis 2, the second chapter of the Bible, Genesis, the first book of the Bible, what we see is that God made the earth in six days. In these six packed days, he made the earth. On the seventh day, he rested. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because everything he'd done in the six days were full of life and harmony and peace. Simply said, there was nothing else to do. And it says the Lord rested and he was refreshed because he had everything he needed. Everything was in its place. David here... In the first two chapters of his reign as king, he's defeated the enemies, he's driven out the people that have plagued them, he's taken back the city for God, he's put the ark back in God's city. Everything is in its place. He's worked hard, and he's resting. 
This is the seventh day where we find ourselves as the chapter begins. He's resting. Everything is in harmony and peace. And yet, what is David marked by? Verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says this. It says, Now when the king lived in the house, in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, this is what David said. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. He thinks to himself, Here I am in my mansion, right? It's the house of cedar. In that day, cedar was the creme de la creme. It's nostalgic now, like a cabin, but that was in that day the building material. And he says, I'm sitting in this big cedar house and God is currently having his ark in an old canvas, musty Boy Scout camp tent in the tabernacle, right? It's, It's worse for the wear probably after going and following the pillars through the desert and here. And he says, you know what? It's it's not arrogance for me to build it. It's more embarrassment. I, I want to build this house for God. It should be right that the God that God have a nice house like I do. And like it said, the Lord had led David to defeat all the surrounding enemies so that he could rest. And what do we see? Something in David that's probably in you and I. There's this instinctual propensity to have to offer something. We have to offer something because rest in our world accomplishes really not much for us. It doesn't really credit us or advantage us. Rest is not very helpful if you're trying to get ahead and trying to do things and be a mover and shaker. That's what we see in David and also in us. That In fact, our true desire to rest and be still often is outdone by our desire to offer something of worth for good reasons or bad. It's often outdone because we want to offer something. He's resting. He probably even becomes bored. He's conquered all these enemies and he's thinking, where's the next mountain for me? And when boredom hits, projects ensue. And David wants to build God a house. And as he says this, you can hear the xylophones. The Home Depot jingle. Right? He's saying, I'm going to go. I'm going to go, and I'm going to build God a house. I can do it. We got this. It is very attainable. And so he, he, as this jingle goes uh, on, you can hear it in the back of Second Samuel 7. The motto of Home Depot, how doers get more done. And that motto actually fits kind of well with David in this moment. He's going to do things for God. He's going to produce things. He's going to create things. God is actually... God is lucky David's on his team. He's here and he's thinking, I'm going to do this for God. And oftentimes we take that motto, when how doers get more done, and we apply that to our own life, even our own spiritual life. And we arrange and collect things enough so that we will have some kind of orchestra of a life and and accreditation of a life that says my life attests to that I'm accomplishing something whether it's prosperous whether it's um, morality whether I'm able to do something and grab hold of something that says I'm doing the right things God look what I'm doing for you and maybe even there's the there's the follow through of the golf swing that says therefore you owe me and here 
if you consider yourself a Christian today, when you apply that motto, that how doers get more done, and you think God needs me to do things for him, I'm, I'm on God's team now. What, what am I contributing? No one likes the, you know, the weakest link. Of course, if you apply that logic to your own spiritual life, of course, you will have arrogance if you are doing well in life. And you think of the other people in the world that say, hey, if they were just doing more, they'd be better. The, the key to my success is I'm doing so much for God and I'm slaying it. Of course, it makes sense. Arrogance comes when success is there. And also, maybe the other option is, of course, you wither on the vine if you aren't doing well, if you aren't accomplishing things, if you aren't finding traction, if you aren't feeling God amidst all your busyness and doing. How doers get more done. If you're a Christian, so often there can be malfunctions that way. But, but if you're not a Christian... It would make sense. You want nothing to do with this kind of God if you said, this God just wants me to do things for him. He needs me, and I don't like a God that's needy. I don't like a God that has to have me. I don't really like a God that says, gives me a task, and I have to just follow the taskmaster. And here in 2 Samuel 7, we see David has this propensity to not be still, and we should look at that and apply it to our own lives because that's what God's inviting us to do. The important thing to note here is God wants to give David rest. He doesn't expect production from him. And you can hear it in the first verse of the chapter. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest, not David had earned it from all his surrounding enemies. We have to get out of our own way of thinking, God is lucky to have me on his team. Or I have a God who actually I'm able to gain up and accrue an account that benefits me. We have to get out of our own way so that we can rest. And that's what God, the rest of the chapter, invites David into. Rest and trust. So, to articulate that, the second idea, what is God after? What is God after? As the napkin has been written on by David and it's slid across the table, um, Nathan the prophet, his kind of close, David's close inner circle um, friend, he says, hey, I hear you want to do this. And like every man of the cloth, I hear you want to build a big old house. God is with you. Go do it. Um, and then David goes to sleep that night. Or uh, Sorry. Nathan goes to sleep that night. And Nathan has this dream. And God visits Nathan in the dream in 2 Samuel 7. And he says, hey, that whole David build me a house thing? Uh, no and yes. David's not going to do it. In fact, his offspring will do it. His son will do it. So go and tell David in the morning, um, he shouldn't build me the temple. He shouldn't build me this house. And he goes on to say more things. And he lists why David shouldn't go build the house. And one of the first things he says is, I don't want David to build me a house because guess what? I have everything I need. I'm not a God who has a void and a, sh a need of this big old fancy shiny house. Because I'm relational. I'm, I'm incarnational. That actually... I told, just like a wedding vow at a wedding ceremony for richer, for poorer, I found Israel when they were poor. 
when they were slaves in Egypt. And all of a sudden, here they are. There's, it's, the story's changed for them. And they are reigning and they're defeating their enemies after they've only known defeat from their enemies. For poorer or for richer, it doesn't matter because I don't need a house because I have them. God is saying, I have what I want. You. Israel, I have you. That's what God's after in verses 4 and 7. But then later on, in just the verses after that, we hear in verses 8 to 11, actually, God doesn't let David build the house, this temple, because God wants to put David in his grace. God wants to put David in his grace. Now, that's a, a Christianese cocktail. It's kind of lofty words. What does that mean? That God wants to put David and you and I in his grace. God, in verses 8 to 11, starts telling and reminding David through the prophet Nathan, hey, in First Samuel 16, David, that's when you kind of enter the story. And when, when I found you, David, you weren't the first choice to be king. Your brothers were, and the next brother, and the next brother. And actually, when I got to your point in the lineage, and Samuel asked your dad, Jesse, hey, do you have any more sons? Because none of these are the ones the Lord wants. Your dad says, hey, yeah, there's a shepherd boy out, out back. He didn't even call him by name. You have a father that didn't even validate you to call you by name, and you became king and anointed king then. So now that you are king and things are going very well, David, I think I know your heart enough and the human heart enough to know if you build me a house, oh, how quickly it can go to your head, right? If I let you have everything you want, wouldn't it make sense that you look back on it and you think of your production and your provision and your portfolio and say, look what I have done. And God says, I'm not going to let you do that because actually I'm going to save you from yourself here. Um, my oldest brother, all-state football player, Mr. Football runner-up, um, won two state championships as a high school player. And uh, the second time they went to the state championship game, they won in the double overtime on a cold December day, and they hoisted up the gold trophy, right? The middle of the field. And he had worked years and years and years for that very moment. And he made it. Twelve hours later, he woke up. After getting everything he had worked for, in the dramatic fashion of being a victor, he said to himself, is this it? I've gotten everything I wanted. I've done everything I wanted to do. Is this it? This is all there is. God is putting David in his grace, God's grace, to know if I give you everything, you may wonder, like your son Solomon will later on down the road, spoiler alert, is this it? It seems all meaningless. I've gotten everything I wanted and yet I'm still empty. I don't want this to be a blanket statement or being said recklessly. There is a grace when God says no to you about something. And it's not because it's it's some spiritual phrase that's a billboard. It's something that's very real. And it's important. We'll look at just a second downstream of what God doesn't put a period there, but a comma. 
God's graciously saying, David, I know you enough and have a vision for your life enough that I want to invite you into it instead of you asking me to play to your vision for your life, even for mine. It's gracious for God to put him in the wake of grace, and it's gracious of God to say, I'm with you. I'm incarnational. I'm relational. I have everything I need. I don't need a house. If we stop there, God all of a sudden is the no fun parade. Like He, he, he says, no, no, no. And it's, it's almost like this lesson uh, task um, person. He says, I'm here to teach you a lesson, and you're going to thank me later on when you're an adult. All right, you've heard those authority figures in your life. And that's not what God's doing. Because God goes on and says, hey, I'm going to defer this desire and dream of yours. And in its place, I'm going to put something. David, you say you want to build me a house. David, you want to build God a house. And God says, I'm not going to let you do that. Because in place of that dream, I am going to build you a house. I'm going to give you something that you can never dream, never even imagine what it would look like. I will build you a house. And this is where the covenant idea comes in, that God is making a covenant with David. He's made covenants in the past with Old Testament figures, with Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, it says, redemption is coming. It is dark now, but redemption is coming. It's the promise of Jesus. We see it also in Abraham. He says to Abraham, hey, I will make you a great nation, and I'm going to make you a people that will bless the world through you, Abraham, and your lineage. And then we see it in Moses. He says, here's the Chilton's manual for the human heart. Here's how you operate well. The law. It's not a, a list of yeses and nos, do's and don'ts. It's a thing that calibrates you to know yourself well and know your God well. And human flourishing occurs. And here we see it with David. God makes a covenant with David. It's a dynasty covenant. It's a throne, eternal throne on forever. That's what we see in this passage. And what a covenant is with David and with all the other guys in the Old Testament, all the other people, is God saying, here are the terms. Here's this list of terms that I'm entering a relationship with you in. And there are two dotted lines at the bottom for you and for me, for both parties, and as God signs his dotted line, he then holds you back and signs at your dotted line and saying, you have no part in this other than getting the benefit of it. What a covenant with God is and what a covenant with David is, is saying, God wants you to know his love and care for you to the point in which he will make it cost himself. He will make sure of it on his own word. And that's what we see after he has said, David, don't build me a temple. Don't build me a house. I will build you a house. God will. God will. And look at verse 11 and on. Look, this is not underlined in your Bibles. Sorry, I underlined it. Look what God will do. He is the actor and he is the promiser. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish your kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son 
when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What is God after? That's the question we're asking. God is after his people getting himself at the cost of himself. I will do it, God says. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. And what's required of David is rest and trust. Because God will do it. God will do it at the cost of himself. This is much like going on the full moon flotilla. Shameless plug, August 25th event, men's event, will float down the river gorge underneath the moonlight. This is like going on the full moon flotilla with Mitch Grothaus. You say, you say, hey, I don't have a life vest. And Mitch says, oh, I got you. Um, I don't have a, any kind of vessel whatsoever. And he says, no problem. I've got some. I don't have a headlamp. It's dark outside. Here, have mine. I can't swim, Mitch. Hop on my back. Right? Mitch will take care of everything. He will. If you're coming to that event, please bring something if you have something. <laughs> everything for your enjoyment is taken care of at the cost of the one who's making your enjoyment possible. That's a covenant. God says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, and you are the beneficiary of it. That's what God is after. To bless you. It's not this health and wealth. If you believe it, you got it, name it and claim it. What it is is saying, I will bless you, and I'm inviting you to trust me. Because I'm swearing by myself. God's inviting David and us to rest and trust. And maybe in the anxiousness of your world, in the anger of your world, in the hurried of your world, the worried of your world, the busy of your world, anything else, you need to stop and close your eyes and take a deep breath and say the words of 2 Samuel 7 that says, he will, he will, he will. And that is not superficial spirituality. That is resounding God's words back to him of saying, Lord, you said you would do this. All the while pounding it into your heart. Lord, you will do this because you said you will. You have signed at my dotted line and I don't have to worry because my signature is not there. Yours is. Therefore, Please do it, Lord. Please do it, Lord. What is God after? He is after giving you himself at the cost of himself, and he's inviting you to trust. So this last idea, how to trust. How do we trust? If that's what we're being invited into, what does it look like? When I was in third grade, um, I slept in one Sunday morning, and my family went to church, and so I, I was left home alone. Someone make a movie entitled that. I was left home alone. And uh, it's a dream, right? Isn't that the dream? Uh, you get to 
get to skirt going to church as an elementary school student. And so um, this was the dream come true in a way until my family came back and they told me what I missed. Now, mind you, the church that I grew up at, it was in downtown Nashville, right on Music Row. The people who played in the band were the, the, the peerless session players of the studios. And they told me, my family told me that a guest uh, by the name of Bono of U2 had come. And they knew how much I loved U2. I, side note, I made a note for one whole year to listen to the song Vertigo. And I accomplished that goal as a third grader. All of a sudden, this dream that I had was was nothing compared to what I had missed out on. Bono, they said that he did an acoustic version of the Where the Streets Have No Name with this beautiful tie-in to what the Lord's doing in his life. And, then, and, and they made a third grader sit with that for three days, and they said, actually, we were lying to you. <laughs> I said, I'd like a new family now. It really is too good to be true. It really is too good to be true. How do we trust a God in something he's promised us and not feel the tension of, it's just too good to be true? Lord, you said you're going to do all this stuff, that you're going to, if I'm yours, I will belong and I will have my cup filled up to overflowing. And Lord, you've said that, um, yeah, you've not promised wealth or riches, but you've promised me such intimacy with you that actually, Lord, I'll need nothing else. We have a God who promises much. And you should take a God who promises not much and nothing less but how do we know it's not too good to be true? David responds to the word of Nathan, the prophet. He has his dream. He comes and tells David his dream and says, hey, here's what the Lord told me. You're not going to build it, but, but actually he's going to do these things. He will, he will, he will. David responds with this prayer. And it's kind of this lofty, um, at first glance, this lofty, romantic, kind of Christianese-filled uh, Bible words. It's hard to grasp and get a hold of. And yet, the more you look at it and dig into it, it gives us the framework of how to trust a God who promises much. And, and that framework is this. You look at the past to inform the present and the future. You look at the past to inform the present and the future. David looked at the past David looked and said, he said in verse uh, 23, he said, Lord, you have redeemed Israel. The most important event in the Old Testament that everyone looked at, it was this cornerstone. Everything was built on in the Old Testament for the people of Israel. You have redeemed us. We were slaves. We had nothing, and we were only known for what we produce. And we were only known in the cyclical age of doubting, where's our God? You have redeemed us. You've plucked us out, and you've made us your people. You've done that. That has happened in the past. And because of that real past event, I'm here in the present. I'm David in 2 Samuel 7, and, I, and trust is in, requires something in the present. And David knows that, and we know that. And because of that, David says in verse 27, 
He says, you, God, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. He's saying, Lord, you said this, and because of that, right now, I'm going to pray a prayer to you. So give me courage in the present. And then for David, as he looks to the future, he says, in verse 29, you've said forever, and it's a hyperbolic word. Right? In marriage counseling, you tell people, you never say never, you never say always, you never use these hyperbolic words because it doesn't, it's not real, it's not good, it's not helpful in communication and connection. You've said the word forever, Lord. And forever means forever, so you've got to make forever happen. If it's going to happen, you better make it happen. David looked at a past event to inform the present and the future, the exodus. God's deliverance of his people. And for you and I, we do the same thing. We look at a past event, the cross, and that very cross, the past real event that God has intervened for his people that informs the present and the future. Because on the cross, we see the, the notes of the things that are promised in 2 Samuel 7. We see Jesus is the true king. Yeah, David defeated everybody so he could rest. Jesus had to be defeated by death so he could defeat death in order for him to rest. David wants to build God a temple where God and man meet. Jesus is the true temple. Solomon's going to build one, yeah, and it's going to be destroyed later on, yeah. Jesus is the true temple where man and God meet and dwell perfectly together. And Jesus is the eternal one on the eternal throne right now that David was promised in 2 Samuel 7. And he's reigning right this very moment. And if that was not true, this room is folly. This gathering is folly. Our prayers are folly. If Jesus is not on the throne promised to David, all of a sudden it is a house of cards Christianity is that falls apart. And for us... This very day, if we take that structure that David had and implement it in our own lives, if how do we trust past, present, and future, we look to the past. We say, Jesus, you have come on the cross for me. Have a past real event and form my own past to say, I see the fingerprints of the risen Savior, of the divine in my life, because you have led me from somewhere. Friends, where are you coming from? What's your story marked by? Everyone has a story. That's the beautiful thing. No one's an ordinary person. What is your unordinary story? Because to get anywhere in the present and the future, you got to look behind. And you can't linger there. You can't be fixated on it. But you have to have it ground. This God who's promised you much has done much for you. And that informs the present. The present. He's, as David says, Lord, give me courage. It's hard to pray this prayer right now. You just told me no about something I wanted to give you. Or a true heart is revealed when a dream and a desire is deferred. And yet he says, Lord, I trust you. Give me courage to trust you right now to sit and rest. Do we worry in the present? Yes. Do we doubt in the present? Yes. Of course we do. And sometimes those things are more real than the trust and the promise that God has asked and given to us. Does that doubt or lack of trust, is it a trap door? Does it flush every bit of faith you have? No. 
Not one single bit. Because Jesus can do much with doubt. And feeble faith. Those are simply spheres and avenues to say, Lord, help me trust you more. Help me trust you more. As I live in community, as I examine my own heart, as I see the way I'm built and wired, help me trust you more. And then lastly, Lord, I'm looking to the future. We're all heading somewhere. There is a North Star we're going toward. Trust is taking me somewhere. And so because of the empty tomb, Jesus, you walked out of there for some reason. It wasn't just so I could be a Christian now and and be in a cloud with harp one day. No, you're taking me somewhere. Jesus, what are you up to on the things on the horizon I can see and the things past that I can't see? And maybe even worry and anxiousness ensues there. Past, present, future. All are these avenues to say, Lord, claim them with what you have done for me in light of who Jesus is, the true king, the true temple, the true one enthroned right now. Because the God of David who says, I'm inviting you to trust, is this very day inviting us to trust. And he is not there to meet you with shame if you fail, if you stumble. He's there to say, I know it's hard. And I'm with you every step of the way. Because he says, I will, I will, I will, I will. Let's pray. Lord, would you this very day minister to our own hearts because you said, um, I am with my people. I don't need a tent, David. If we needed a tent, we should never leave this room, Lord. And yet you said, I don't need a tent. I don't need a place to gather up. I don't need a, a temple. Because you've poured out your spirit on the, those who you've called your beloved. So this very day, would you... Make the promises you have given to your people that are large and that are rigorous to believe, even at times very nebulous. Would you have these promises be plastered onto our hearts? Because it's rigorous for us to do that to our own hearts. And just as David prayed, give us courage in the here and the now as you are taking us somewhere. We pray in your name, King Jesus, all because you will you will, you will. And all that is because on the cross, you did, you did, you did all for us. Pray in your name. Amen. You are taking us somewhere. We pray in your name, King Jesus, all because you will, you will, you will. And all that is because on the cross, you did, you did, you did all for us. Pray in your name. Amen.